0: Welcome to Mythsterhood of the Travelling Tales. Join us as we roar the heavens and swim the seas in search of the spectacular and magical. Like the Hydra of Greek lore, our fangs can raise the dead, bringing lost skeletons back to life for an episode or two. But unlike our three-headed friend, we're not guarding the door to the underworld. No, we're blasting it wide open and inviting you to come explore with us. Hello, hello, misters, and welcome to episode 22 of Mr. Hood of the Travelling Tales. And with me, as usual, is Annika. Hi, Methsters. Hi, Annika. So you're sounding awfully clean today.
1: What's up with that? Hmm, oh, nothing much, just that I have a new. A proper microphone. Thanks to
0: Steve, also known as AK Sounder, to whoever is a member of our Discord community, has very generously given us a donation to support our work with the
1: podcast. And, Annika, what did we do with it? We got this new mic so that, well, I don't sound so, how do I put it? Ethereal and noisy. <laughs>
0: Exactly. And I mean, I can already tell the difference before I've even started editing the track. So this is amazing. Thank you, Steve. We love you. We really do. So much. So much. (laughs) So um, furthermore, we would like again to remind you to join in on our Renga if you like. Um, The Renga is basically a poetry game and the poem that comes out of it will be a part of our last episode of the season and by joining in on the renga you get tickets in the giveaway that we'll be having for annika's amazing end of season artwork so do come and check it out and then we get on to the episode (laughs) this is episode two of the british isles and annika what did we not need this week but we will definitely need now um the pronunciation disclaimer
1: yes We will need to, yes, definitely, because we're going to have a lot of interesting names that we'll have to pronounce this time.
0: Yeah, because Wales is on the menu for today, so we need the pronunciation disclaimer for sure. (laughs) Um, But yeah, let's do this thing. I'm excited. I'm super excited.
1: Okay, so let's do a quick recap of what we covered last episode. We checked out some dragons from the northern part of England and did one quick hop over to the Orkney Islands as well. That left us with a varied menu for our mythsters, consisting of a slice of southern England and finishing off with a bouquet of dragons from Wales, Ireland, more of Scotland and man.
0: Ooh, a bouquet of dragons? Like sheep are a flock, crows are a parliament, cows are a herd, I vote we name a group of dragons a bouquet!
1: Jazz, that is both strange and strangely beautiful. (sighs) Hey, you said it first. And
0: it's actually a great way to reclaim dragonhood as a whole from the evil role they've been shoved into so often.
1: Oh, too true. The pen is mightier than the sword, after all.
0: Not to mention the venomous breath.
1: Uh... Okay. But dragons, Jazz, focus. Because really, what we found proved too much to fit into a single episode. Which means we had to split yet again, leading to our first three-part episode.
0: Yeah, quite the milestone. So let's start in Sussex,
1: as that seems to
0: have been fertile breeding ground for dragons.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) The first one on our list is a bit of a mystery. In Sussex, we found a hill that, these days, possesses a seemingly irresistible challenge to cyclists, runners and walkers, Bignor Hill, in the West Sussex village of Bignor. Once you make it to the top, the hill is said to offer some stellar views of the South Downs Way, and the hill's southern slope is home to the remains of a Neolithic settlement and a bowl barrow, which is sort of a burial mound. No
0: wonder the dragon found it the ideal spot to build a lair. So much interesting stuff to explore.
1: <laughs> Sadly, there's not that much detail on the dragon itself. One distinctive feature of the size is the ridges curling themselves around the heel. Alleged has it that those were cut by the ancient Celtic dragon wrapping its tail around the heel. Like the lampton worm? Precisely. Some folktales take things even more literally, and claim that the ridges are the dragon's skin folds. Apparently, the dragon's lair was also quite close to the ruins of a Roman villa. One source hypothesizes that the legend symbolizes a stubborn remnant of Roman occupation, or that it signifies the Christian demonization of pagan customs, However, as plausible as it sounds, I only found the one mention. And that was not in an in-depth article, so apply grains of salt where needed. Fair, but luckily
0: Sussex is not a one-trick dragon. I mean, as Michael O'Leary says in his book Sussex Folktales, just look at the pub names. Georgian dragon, red dragon, green dragon, just dragon... They've apparently even got a town called Dragons Green, a tiny little slip of hamlet in the Horsham district of West Sussex. I looked it up on Google Maps and let me tell you, it looks stinking cute and green.
1: Oh man, I'd love to move there just for the name. (laughs) Anyway, opinions are, how could they not be? Not entirely agreed upon the origin of the Dragon Legends. Some say they are a remnant of the Celtic culture and folklore, others say the slightly more recent Saxon folklore lies at the origin of them. But to credit the rich folklore of the region, dragons included to a single people, is probably not doing credit to the melting pot of peoples and cultures that these islands have been for as long as people have been living there.
0: That actually makes a lot of sense to me, but let's stipulate that this is our own interpretation and not a fact that we found in any of our sources. But we've seen the effects of cultural cross-pollination in dragon myths across the world, and I suspect we will continue to do so, both in the final few episodes of Season 1 and in Season 2, no matter which type of myth we delve into for that.
1: Oh, that's true. But let's not look at the whole world. We are in the British Isles right now. Sussex, to be precise. (laughs) Right,
0: West Sussex actually, we see little or no dragons in the rest of the region, either because there were none or because their stories never got recorded. So first of all, a reminder, these dragons are not the redeemable kind. Serpents were seen as very unlucky and dragons by association were equally unloved and unappreciated. A bloke named Ethelward in 770 AD said... Monstrous serpents were seen in the country of the southern Angles that is called Sussex.
1: They did find iguanodon bones in close to the place where one of the Sussex dragon legends played out, though. Tilgate Forest, I believe. Perhaps people were of the opinion that there where there's smoke, that there's fire.
0: And where there's bones, there's
1: dragons. <laughs> Precisely. And close <laughs> to <laughs> And close to the Tillgate Forest, we've got St. Leonard's Forest, also near Horsham, where the little town of Dragons Green is located. The town lies directly northeast of St. Leonard's Forest. Apparently, this ancient forest was home to a French hermit in the 6th century. His name was, um, St. Leonard.
0: <laughs> How
1: original! <laughs> yeah. He was, of course, sadly, a dragon slayer. Again, highly original (laughs) i know but this dragon didn't go down without a fight he injured saint leonard and god made white lilies grow where the saintly blood drops fell he also asked saint leonard what he wanted in return for freeing the local folk from the dragon he requested that snakes be banned from the forest and that the nightingales would go silent because they disturbed his prayer
0: uh, seriously, it's just so typically human to expect all of nature to accommodate our
1: lifestyle and preferences. <laughs> yeah. See, that's why I prefer spiders <laughs> and dogs and cats and dragons. Oh, of course, yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Anyway, there's no actual extant record of St. Leonard ever having visited Sussex. He was a French saint and martyr. How the legend ended up attributed to him is a bit of a mystery to me. I found vague hints at that, but nothing really concrete.
1: Hmm. There is, however, a fragmentary record of traditional rhymes regarding this particular forest. Here the adders never sting, nor the nightingales sing.
0: Still makes me sad to think of the birdsong being silenced. It sounds like a prayer all its own to me. Besides, if one were to believe in a god that had created the whole world and all of nature, it would be safe to assume that had created both nightingales and adders and liked them as they were. And where they were. Anyway, a second story, much more recent, if you can call 1614 recent. <laughs>
1: Oh, All in the eye of the beholder, Jazz. Remember, Cleopatra lived closer to our time than to the building of the Pyramids of Giza.
0: That, as we say in Belgium, is a truth like a cow. (laughs) At any
1: rate, this
0: story was preserved in the form of a pamphlet. Some apparently believe it was made up by smugglers or likewise unsavoury folk in order to keep people away from the area where they conducted their business. (laughs) You can actually find a copy of the pamphlet in the library of the Sussex Archaeological Society as part of a document called the Harleian Miscellany. Large parts of the document are freely available through Google Play Books, and it's a rather fascinating collection of curiosa that can almost make you feel like you're stepping back in time.
1: If you're into it, it is definitely worth a look. At any rate, the story talks about a dragon haunting St. Leonard's Forest. It was believed to roam the area near Horsham, which was a market town at the time. It had been sighted as close as half a mile from the town and left a gluttonous or slimy trail. The slime was corrosive and smelly enough to remind of putrefaction.
0: It smells like déjà vu, if you ask me. Like, this sounds so similar to the Scandinavian slimy one, the (laughs) Vatnaormar. At any rate, this iteration of the St. Leonard's Forest Dragon was nine feet or more, with black scales and a white ring marking around the neck. Oh, and a red belly.
1: Uh Ha! That must look great. And... Unlike many of the British serpents that we found so far, this dragon was not a worm. It had distinct legs, and it had an arrogant look about it. I love that. <laughs> it clearly realized Amazing. how puny the silly humans were. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and the author of the pamphlet believed the dragon actually was a juvenile, as it had humps on the shoulders which might grow into wings as the dragon matured.
0: Oh, I don't really remember any other juvenile dragons.
1: That is so cool! I know! Baby dragons.
0: (laughs) But words are cheap, and we have dragons to see before we sleep, and yes, I totally ripped off Frost for that.
1: (laughs) Ripped off or not, you do have a fair point. Still in Sussex, we find a dragon called a Knucker. And another creature in which we can find traces of cultures blended together in folklore.
0: Ooh.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Because you've got the Saxon word Nikkor, meaning a water monster. For an extant mention of Nikkor, look to Beowulf. Then there's Nixie, usually referring to a water spirit or sprite. In Iceland, we find the word Nikir meaning water horse. And the Nakin and neck, Scandinavian words for watermen and water spirits.
0: In Estonian, you find the word nakine, Nakineu for mermaid and Nak for a singing water animal. Finland? We can't skip Finland. Naki is a fearsome Finnish water spirit.
1: While these are mostly referring to the water spirit, we also found a knocker, a mythological creature found in Cornish mines, and the nickel a goblin found in German mines. While similar to the knocker, it is a bit less benevolent, but just a wee bit. <laughs> well, we can keep going, but I think
0: we've made our point. So these knuckers lived in what was called <laughs> holes, basically pools or ponds. One famous hole lay near the village of Lyminster. It was believed to be bottomless, but nowadays we're pretty sure it's about 9 metres deep. Divers went and checked, so this is a safe assumption. <laughs>
1: The pool was fed from an underground spring, which keeps the water clear and at a fairly constant temperature. Those traits might have seemed like magic to folk in olden times, which makes the belief in knockers somewhat understandable.
0: Nowadays, the knocker hole is home to farm trout rather than a dragon, and a fence keeps both tourists and trout fishers away. But people used to believe the water had healing properties as well, and used to bottle it as a cure.
1: And they risk life and limb to do it, as they were convinced the knocker was a dangerous beastie. It went on rampages, killing humans and livestock alike, though some claim only fair maidens were at risk. And while it was a water monster, it could apparently fly, which means the rama- rampages could cover a fair bit of distance.
0: And of course, the Nucker too fell victim to a brave dragon slayer, though the legends can't agree on whether he was defeated in combat by a wandering knight uh-huh. or tricked with poison pudding or pie by a local boy called Jim Pullock or Jim Polk. Uh-huh. In one of the latter versions, Kama is a bitch, and Sneaky Jim forgets to wash the dragon's poison off his own skin and dies. Reminding of the tragic ending of Peter Loshi and his dog.
1: Hmm. But Lindminster's knockerhole was far from unique. According to the Sussex Dialect Dictionary, oh, that's a mouthful. <laughs> According to the Sussex dialect dictionary, knuckleholes are springs which rise in the flatlands of the South Downs, and were believed to be bottomless. They can also be found at Lansing, Shoreham, and Worthing, among others. So,
0: as fascinating and varied as Sussex dragons are, we've used up the length we usually reserve for an episode, and we've not even moved beyond the boundaries of West Sussex.
1: <laughs> okay, how about we move to Herefordshire? In the West Midlands.
0: To the delightfully alliterative story of Maud and the Mordiford Wyvern. And the story is rather unusual. In the village of Mordiford, a young girl named Maud found a baby wyvern while out on a walk. She took it home and adopted it, which I would totally do too. She fed her wyvern with milk, but as the dragon matured, it developed a taste for human flesh. Despite regular banquets consisting of four townsfolk, the wyvern remembered Maud's kindness and refused to eat his foster mother.
1: Mm, and rightly so. Such a good dragon. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Maud
0: kept trying to keep the dragon from killing more people, but she didn't make much headway. In the end, the locals saw no other option than to vanquish the dragon, and again we see a few different versions. For example, a member... Of, or someone loyal to, the Garston family ambushed the wyvern.
1: <laughs>
0: Another version tells of a condemned criminal who consented to an attempt to face the dragon in exchange for not getting executed. <laughs> I'd say that's probably a fair trade. Although, that's of course going to depend on the crime and the amount of remorse the criminal displays.
1: But yeah. <laughs> Uh, These stories survived mainly through oral storytelling and became a fixture in local folklore. A portrait of the dragon graced the wall of Mordeford's village church until 1811, where the vicar at the time ordered the destruction of the dragon's image, as dragons were considered a sign of the devil, and didn't belong on the walls of holy buildings.
0: Blasphemy, if you ask me. (laughs) Wholeheartedly agree. And a reproduction of the painting is now apparently displayed inside the church. And in the 1790s, a version of the story finally got recorded by a certain Samuel Ireland when he visited Mordiford. He was told the Virgin with the criminal as a dragon slayer. Apparently, the culprit hid in a cider hogshead in order to get close enough.
1: Then another extant recording dates from 1799, when George Lipscomb saw the dragon painting while working on a travel book. But let's look at the painting. Late in the 17th century, a certain John Aubrey of Wessex noted that he remembered seeing it for the first time, and that it had three pairs of wings, and that a fourth pair got added later. A sketch by Thomas Dingley apparently depicted the dragon as having four legs as well as wings, and a serpent-like torso. It's not until a later painting dating from the 18th century that we see the typical image of the wyvern, with two legs and two wings.
0: Well, this story is kind of bittersweet for me. I love the image of Maud finding a baby dragon and adopting and raising it, but she must have felt so torn between her love for her dragon and seeing that it recognised her, but also having to witness the attacks on livestock and people, often even people she must have known.
1: Yeah, that can't be easy. But anyway, what do you say we move from England to another part of the UK? Because if there's one culture within the UK you can't overlook when you want to discuss dragons, it's Wales.
0: Oh yeah, it's such an indelible part of Welsh culture and the Welsh identity. It's not for nothing that the symbol of the dragon takes centre stage in Welsh heraldry.
1: The red dragon depicted in the Welsh flag actually appears alongside a white dragon in the Mabinogion, which is one of the earliest available examples one can find of British prose. It's basically a collection of wealth mythology. Okay,
0: side note, since we're now in Wales, I actually had to go and look up pronunciation guides because they've got this thing where they put a double L at the beginning of a word and it doesn't sound like an L at all. I knew that much, but I had no idea how to produce the sound. But all hail the mighty YouTube. I'm not saying I perfected it, but it's at least close, I think. So here goes. It's in the Mabinogian in the story of Hlud and Hlyfellis. I think, to be precise, that we encountered these two dragons. Do you think that sounded all right?
1: Uh, I think so. It sounded pretty much like how the YouTube video (laughs) instructed it to be sound. Right. So
0: on to our two brothers. I'm not going to name them again
1: (laughs) till I get a break. (laughs) Okay. Well, the red and white dragons were locked in battle and a fierce one at that. Their very cries apparently caused women to miscarry. And their presence alone was enough to kill livestock and ruin crops. And here's where our brothers, Chlud and Gleiflius, come in.
0: Hlut hlau who was the king of Britain, was bloody well sick of these dragons terrorising his people. So he went to pay his brother, King Lefelis, a visit in France. And this Lefelis was apparently wiser in the ways of dragon fighting, or dragon trickery, as it turned out.
1: He told Chlud to fill a pit with mead and cover it with cloth, which Hlod did. The dragon started drinking and fell into a drunken stupor. Though I fail to understand how the covering it all with cloth factorised into their strategy.
0: Hmm, good point. At any rate, cloth or not, it worked. Chlud managed to imprison the dragons in Dinas Emrys, a wooded hillock in Wales, before they sobered up the dragons and the effects they were having on Clud's subjects were actually only one of three plagues and Clephelis told him what to do about the others and all's well that ends well in the end
1: and this myth too could well have served as a metaphor for the many invaders the proud welsh have had to suffer one interpretation is that the red dragon represents the native celtic inhabitants of britain while the White Dragon stands in for the Anglo-Saxons of Germanic descent, who began to invade England in the 5th century.
0: Then there are those who link the story to the Arturian legends through Arthur's father, Uther Pendragon. The name supposedly meant Dragonhead. Geoffrey of Monmouth mentions this version in his 12th century Historia Regnum Britanniae, as well as a prophecy attributed to Myrddin, also, and perhaps better known as Merlin, of a long fight between a red and white dragon, symbolising the historical struggle between the Welsh and English.
1: And here, upon leaving Wales, is where we bid the Mithsters goodbye yet again, I'm afraid. Alas, it is
0: true. I mean, I am loving all this detail so, so much. Even if so much of it is about slaying dragons rather than treasuring them, but yeah. Stay tuned for episode 23 and another bouquet of dragons from the Isle of Man, Ireland and Scotland.
1: (laughs) And until then, we wish you days like dragons greeting clouds. Later, misters.
0: Hello, hello, misters, and welcome to episode... Shit. 22? (laughs) 22. (laughs) I think. Wait, Yay! What? I got it right. Cows are a parliament. Crows. Cows, Cows are a parliament. Are a parliament. <laughs> well, they should be. A, they fucking well should be. There's a lot
1: of bullshit there. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there
0: we go. But we've seen the effects of cultural crosspl- cross cross.
1: Pollination.
0: <laughs> pollination, yes. Cross pollination.
1: <laughs> the dragon started drinking and fell into a, dra- a dragon stupor.
0: <laughs> well, a dragon stupor is not wrong. <laughs> Sorry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>